Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Come on and be seated. And uh, if you didn't get your paperwork, it's out on the tables out back. And uh, again, we'll just keep having the updates all the way through. We're going to go 12 weeks with this. Uh, so we have three more nights uh, following tonight. Take us all the way almost through to the end of uh, April and uh, to the last evening of our uh, Wednesday night programming. Uh, tonight we're going to cover the pastoral epistles. I had the opportunity to teach this collegiately. Don't panic. I don't know if I did it well, but I had a chance to study it academically when I was teaching at Great Lakes Christian College and taught it two or three times there. And so this is one of my favorite uh, parts of the Bible. It's probably where most of us land in our devotional reading to a section where we read it and we go, oh, I know what to do with this. Some of the other contexts, like we talked about last time, Ephesians and Colossians, are just unique enough that it causes us to wonder, okay, how do I implement that personally? And uh, so I'm going to pray and then we're going to talk about the difference between the uh, letters to the churches we studied two weeks ago before our break and what we're going to study tonight. So let's have a, a word of prayer. Thank God that we can be here tonight and then uh, we'll proceed. God, thank you for this uh, safe place to meet and thank you for the opportunity that we had freedom in our schedule to be able to come here tonight and to study together and to encourage each other and to allow uh, children to be taught and encouraged in Christ. Uh, I pray that the seeds that will be planted throughout this campus tonight and every other church in this area, that the things that are taught, the things that are spoken of, the things that are prayed about would be part of your plan to grow us in the gospel and to give us hope, to allow us to be people of hope, to offer peace and reconciliation to those around us. And uh, this, this entire day is yours. Help us to recognize that, to live within that, and to grow in it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, letters to churches versus pastoral letters. There's a concern that I think we need to address, and you might hear me say this often. I received a very courteous email recently from someone saying uh, that I make comments periodically on either Wednesday night or Sunday morning about the Western mind, or we in America have difficulty with this. And I, and I want to clarify what I'm trying to do there. What I'm trying to do is burst the bubble of presupposition that we're apt to have, meaning that you can't help if you're a native-born American, to think like an American. You've been trained to think like an American. The television experience you had growing up, the radio programs you listened to, the books you read, have all come from a Western mindset. It's a worldview. It's not either good or evil. It has to be made aware of. Uh, for instance, I have my glasses on tonight because my contact prescription is dead to me. I go home with a headache every night. I squint all day. So I've decided until they get my contacts right, I'm just going to wear my glasses. Now, I can't see five rows out there. I can see everything perfectly here. My worldview, if left unadjusted, would lead me to believe that everything right in my arm's length is crystal clear and you are all blurry. I could apply that, that you're nondescript, that you're fuzzy, that there's no distinction between you and you and you, all based on this worldview I would have based on my lenses. I put my glasses on, I could see all of you in the entire room. Of course, I can't see anything with the rotisserie lights, but if, if the lights weren't baking me like a chicken, I could see all of you fairly clear. It's a perspective I hold on to. Now, as Americans, we'll read books like the Ephesians, Philippians, the Romans, Corinthian churches. We'll read those letters, and we'll, we'll have the tendency in our worldview to go, that's not helpful to me. Because we live in an individualistic culture. Neither good nor bad, it is what it is. We, we are heroes in American culture, John Wayne. It's the, the rough and steady cowboy who went out on a horse and conquered land and fended for himself and built fences and raised cattle and raised a family and legacy went on. And we celebrate that. That's our mythology in America. That's the story of the great American spirit. But you have to understand, the Bible was written to a collectivistic culture. It was about community. No one person was greater than their family. If you want to understand passages of the Bible that are a little difficult, go to the Old Testament and read what happened when Achan hid things from the uh, town of Jericho and his entire family was punished for it. And we think unjust, not in that culture. 
collectivistic meant that we're all in this together. I would never usurp your rights and privileges to establish my own. But in our culture, we do that. That's why when we read the pastoral epistles, it's really easy for us to look at them and say, these make sense to me, these help me, those other books, I just don't get anything out of them. It's because you're looking at them with the wrong set of lenses. You're, you're asking yourself, and I've done it too, how can I use this text to help me get what I want? How can I use it to get closer to God? How can I use it to feel better about myself? How can I use it to better my existence? And that's not what they're written for. All of those letters are written to a group of people to say, surrender to the collective. That's called the church. Surrender to that, grow in that, and experience that. Uh, when Matt Gilchrist and I went to Japan a few uh, a month or so back, we, our hotel was a distance away from the train station, and you just walk everywhere. There cars are expensive, land is, there's not a, a lot of space to even park your car if you had one. So I said to Jay Greer, our host, uh, I said, so when we walk to the train stations, are there any parts of town we shouldn't go through? Is there any parts that, like, should we be in before dark? Could we go down? There was an ice cream place that was tempting me, to be real honest with you. It was about six blocks away, and I will walk for ice cream. And so I'm thinking, I don't want to die on the way to get ice cream. And so I said to him, can we just go anywhere? And he looked at me and he said, mugging is not a big deal here. And that fascinated me. And I said, why not? And he said, because you would never shame your family by stealing from somebody. If you rob somebody and, and your whole family would be shamed, that shame culture really works. So all of that intro, what I want to be able to do is have you understand that these passages will seem to you like really applicable to my personal walk. Be careful that you don't just buy into that wholeheartedly. There are some things that will be convicting, but remember, God wants you to grow into these areas so others grow too, not just so you do. Does that make sense? Okay, that was a long intro, but that's what I had in me. All right, we're going to talk about these books. First and Second Timothy, Titus, they're called the pastoral epistles, pastoral letters, written from Paul pastoring them. It's, the term pastor was not a title, it's a verb. Okay, you pastor somebody by taking care of them. If you have a pet, you shepherd that pet. If you have a dog at home, you pastor that dog, right? I mean, some of our dogs are equal to family members, and some of us have outdoor pets, but you pastor your animals. You don't have to pastor cats. They'll tell you what they want. But dogs, you have to put them in safe spots. You let them in, you let them out. You train them, you feed them, you give them a good diet, you try to get them exercise. You're pastoring. Pastoral epistles are letters written by Paul as he's training up these two young preachers, Timothy and Titus. And the letter of Philemon is unique because Philemon is written to explain to a slave owner how he should allow a slave who stole from him and ran away, how he should allow him back to complete his service because he's become a follower of Christ. Those letters are a pastor speaking to someone he's training, raising, and protecting. All right, off we go. First Timothy, a healthy local church. Who wrote it? Paul? All of these will answer that tonight, so you can beat me to the draw there if you get bored. What's it about? It's a letter of advice. It's a letter of advice that he wrote while in Ephesus. And I would encourage you, if you really want to understand the full context of this, go to the book of Acts and read the section where he's in Ephesus and he has to leave in a basket over a wall to save his life. And these letters will make a whole lot more sense. It was written sometime around 64 A.D., give or take a year. 64 seems to be a pretty fair, solid number. Second Timothy, the dating is going to be a little more questionable by the scholars. And why does Paul write the letter? To encourage Timothy how to help the church. Timothy was a young man. That's very important when you read these two letters. Uh, now, young in that culture would have been probably someone between the age of 25 and 40. You have to remember, uh, does, does anybody know offhand, how old do you have to be to be the President of the United States? 35 years of age. Why 35? I'm surprised there hasn't been a lawsuit saying, how dare you deny me the right to be the President before I'm 35 years of age. Because you have to remember, in the European mindset, the collectivistic mindset that came over from Europe and established our our checks and balances, 35 was considered the least amount of age by which you should be in charge of anything. 
in our age now, we, I mean, we all want it at 18. We want to be in charge of something. Uh, and so because of that, you have to remember that to call him a young man did not mean he was a teenager. Timothy had been on journeys, missionary journeys, with Paul in the book of Acts. You'll see that over and over. So he had been on the road with Paul. He had seen how churches get planted. He'd seen how that all comes together. And so because of that, his youthfulness may not be the same way we equate it in, in the States today. Now, we know a little bit about, I've given you looking for a church under there. I've given you some facts about him. Uh, Timothy was raised by his mother and his grandmother. There's not a lot of statement about where his father was. He was probably mixed uh, ethnicity. That would play a factor into people in that region. Those that were like him would accept him and those that wouldn't didn't. And Paul will speak to him about how to overcome some of these things. Okay, so you have the outline of the book there. Hopefully that becomes helpful for you if you choose to read through these books when the time comes. And I hope you hold on to these. So what's special about 1 Timothy? Let's talk about this letter. First is the vital importance of sound doctrine. We live, here I go again, we live in a nation that does not respect that there is one way to do anything. Okay? There's, there's just not. I, I struggle with that. I'm not going to say, you know, it, when I say that, like, we, I mean we. We struggle. Someone says, this is the only way you can do it. Uh-uh. I bet I can find two other ways to do it. Well, how does that affect our walk with Christ? Lordship is difficult for people who have to do it their way. It just is. And sound doctrine is the acid test of whether or not we believe God knows what he's talking about as compared to what we think we know. Churches don't, you know, what, what's funny is, and I appreciate this place because I can say some tough things on Sunday morning and people don't get up and storm out. I don't know if I ever told you my horror story. I was preaching about marriage, was going through the biblical model of marriage, one man and one woman, and that, that, that sexual intimacy was to be saved until the commitment was secured before God. In other words, you, fornication by definition is two people having sex who are not married. There's no other definition of fornication. And I was young and I was nervous and I remember starting to preach and I looked out somewhere between the pews over in this area was a couple that had been living together for two years and started attending our church. And she got up in a huff, stood up, grabbed his hand and walked right down the middle of the aisle, went out. We had folding, flapping doors, you know, like, like a bar. I think it's the only thing that was worldly in our church. And she hit those doors and boom, they came back. Boom, boom, boom. Everybody in the church was doing what you're doing, looking at me going, <laughs> and I remember, I'll be honest with you, in that, in that moment, I so desperately wanted to say, please don't leave, I'm sorry. I just did. My humanity said, I want to be liked. I didn't, I didn't say that to, to irritate you. I don't want you to, I'm embarrassed. And I looked down here, and there's one of our elders named Mike Ball. He was sitting in the third row right on the edge. He never sat up front. That Sunday, he was up front. He's a young guy, about 40 years of age, real young elder, but a bright young Christian. And here I was about 24 years of age. And I just looked at Mike like this, and Mike did this. He knew me well enough to told me, not, don't say anything, Mark, because when you do, you always cause problems. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he put his fingers to his mouth like that, and he said, don't say anything. Then he t stood up in front of the entire church. He turned around to the entire audience. He said, as an elder of this church, I want to say this right now. If any of you think what was just said was inappropriate, you can leave too. And then I was like, yeah, yeah. All of y'all take off. We take an offering. You can all leave now, you know. But I, I, that moment was solidified in me. That night we had an elders meeting and the elders sat me down and they said, it was written all over you. You were going to change what you were convicted the Bible says to make someone happy. And that's when Mike looked at me that night. He's one of my dear friends. He was then, he is now. He looked at me and said, I'll fire you if you do that. Because what is my mandate? To preach the word in season and out of season. If people walk out. Now, if they walk out because I'm rude, inappropriate, arrogant, that's on me. But if the word of God is spoken and people don't like it, we don't like to talk this way in the States. Do we need them to stay? No, they need to stay. But do we need them to stay? No. My father taught me a long time ago, when you read the Gospels, there are moments that Jesus offended a crowd and the Gospel writers all recorded that they walked away from Jesus. 
from an individual to 5,000 people one day. I've preached bad sermons, never had 5,000 walk out. And my dad said, Mark, notice. He gave me an assignment one time. He said, I want you to read those passages and tell me what Jesus did when people walked away from him. And I remember going back to him and said, I've read the ones you've gave me. He did nothing. And my dad said, exactly. That was the end of my lesson. Jesus did not beg people to follow him. He did not ask them to leave though, right? But he did not beg them to stay. Discipleship's a choice. Why do I tell you all those stories? Because I want to pound this one point if you get nothing else tonight. Sound doctrine matters whether we like it or not. And sound doctrine is a process by which God reveals deeper levels to us all the time. Nobody ever has perfect doctrine. None of us have got a systematic theology or a regular theology that can encompass all of God. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are deeper than our thoughts. He reveals himself to us. Our best doctrine is founded on who Jesus Christ is, and then everything else will make sense from there. But we have to be really careful in a country that says, you believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe, and at the end of the day, if we're all good people, we're all going to be okay. That's not true. I wish it were. i will be the first to confess. I would love to look at my older brother and his lifestyle and simply say to him, you are a good guy. He is. But unless he takes a knee before Christ, I fear for his future. I fear for his future more than he does. So I pray every day, God, would you break the rocks in his soil so the seed can land somewhere? It's hard. Doctrine matters. It matters so much that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy to say, don't back down from the truths I've given you. Preach those. Because if you'll notice the second sentence in your little block paragraph there, I want to point out, God's truth will produce love, which comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Why does doctrine matter? Because you cannot have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith unless it's in something besides your intelligence. How many of us have thought something was real and true and found out hours later that we were standing up for something that was not true, insufficient, and we look back and we go, I I thought I would have died for that. Now it's like, ugh. How do you have these things? A sincere faith. A, a sincere conscience. How do you have those things? It's by knowing what God has said and knowing what he's not said. Because the portrayal of God in the world is inaccurate. I will beg all of you. I seldom give the 10-foot pole theology. That's where, you know, like guys will say to me, uh, you know, I'm having trouble with pornography. And Okay, so tell me the patterns in your life that bring this about. And their first thought is, well, I got rid of my computer. So? That's not going to cure the disease you have. Because your mind has memorized everything you've allowed it to see. You don't need a computer. You don't need a phone. You don't need a magazine. You've you've allowed things into you that God has warned us are poison. So that poison's going to be there a while. By the Spirit of God, you can overcome that. Getting rid of your computer was token at best. Make sense? So when we talk about how do we become closer to God, we live in a world that has God painted as all of these things. And so we basically say, well, stay away from all these. No, no, you have to open yourself up to truth. The only antidote to lies is truth. That's why I can't know the Bible for this church. I I can't be available. Our youth minister can't be available to every high school kid who's in a crisis. We have to force all of us to know what sound doctrine is so we know who God is and who he's not instead of simply saying, I'm just going to stay away from the world so I don't get messed up. You don't need the world to sin, do you? We, We don't need crowds to help us. It's a battle every day for our soul. Second, God and one mediator between God and man. I've had a really interesting uh, set of opportunities this week. A friend of mine in Kansas sent me an opportunity to share with him about a view of Satan. Following that, I got a phone call from someone in our church who asked me a question about Satan. Received an email today from someone who was over-glamorizing Satan. I thought, wow, this is interesting. So I just did some reading this afternoon. Shut my door, locked my door, and just went in for about an hour and started doing some research. And here's what I want to tell you. Satan is not your enemy. Satan is the enemy of God. Your greatest enemy is you. My greatest enemy is my selfishness. I can't blame a single thing. Now, I know when I look out in this room, there are some older than me here, so I can use a reference that I've always loved, that the younger people will go, what? 
I grew up with Flip Wilson on television. The devil made me do it. And most of us bought into that, didn't we? Oh, I can't blame me. The devil's just good at what he does. No, he's not. We're just really bad at being holy. I'm not, and Satan is not my adversary. He's God's. He doesn't want to take me. He wants to hurt God. So in this battle, we need a mediator between me and God, not between me and Satan or Satan and God. No, no, it's me and God. When I have sinned, I have sinned against God. I may have sinned against you, but ultimately when I hurt you, I hurt the one who created you and gave you to the earth. So this concept he says here in chapter 2 is he says, present a way that brings what Jesus did back to our relationship with God. Not what Jesus did to make us have another chance, not what Jesus did to make us feel better about ourselves. What did Jesus do to reconcile me back to the Father? I, I remember so many times my father getting angry at me. My dad had a tendency, my dad's a good man, but my dad had a tendency to yell, which is funny because we laugh. None of the four boys, uh, that I, you know, our four boys, none of us show temper loudly. And I think it's all a reaction to my dad. Well, if I had four boys, I think I would go off too. So I want to, I understand why he did what he did, especially the four of us. But my dad got really loud. And I remember sometimes being in my room, my mom could hear me mumbling in my room. I was telling my dad off from behind the door. Everything I wanted to say to him but didn't want to get yelled at, I was, I could have debated for a career. And I would just, and my mom would come in and she'd sit down on the bed and she'd say, tell me what you're thinking. Well, there's no way I can tell her that her husband's a jerk. So I would sit there and I would just suck in my words and I would try to say everything and she'd say, you need to go tell your father that. No, no, I told you so you would go tell him. And I remember her so many times to all of us. She said, nope, if you have a problem with your father, you go to your father. That's what the Bible teaches. Here's what I want you to know that 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 2 is about. It's about when we have an issue with sin, it will always be an issue between God and me. It's about lordship, it's about trust, it's about faith. It's not about me and you. It's about me and God. And Remember what it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then what? And love your neighbor. Which came first? This before this. So it's a mediator. Number three, qualifications for church leaders. That word leader will trigger you to position. Don't go there. Most of the great church leaders never had an official title. You know, they, they didn't. Church leaders were identified by the kind of people they were. So if you look there, and I've provided a list for you, and I stole this, but this list is very uh, helpful for me. If you look at what Paul uses in Ephesians, what he uses in Timothy, what he uses in Corinthians about being a leader, if you take that list that's written down there and you compare it to what he's written in other areas, you're going to see that what is expected of a leader is expected of every one of us. But someone that you should put yourself in submission to is someone who demonstrates this. Now, growing up in some churches, some of us grew up in real conservative churches where this list was manipulated to give us a list of do's and don'ts, right? Divorced, can't. Drink a, a drop of alcohol, can't. Play cards, can't. If you go all the way back, and if you stayed with me this long, if you go all the way back to week one and two, we talked about legalism versus freedom, okay? The Bible is not, it is not a checklist of what you can and can't do. It is a statement about who you should become, it's not about what you do, it's about who you are. And when you read this list, why would it say that a person who's leading should not be addicted to alcohol or should not be a drunkard? Because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control. So every one of us has stuff. That's what we call it in America, right? We all got our stuff. But sometimes our stuff can be our God and our crutch and replace the need for God in our lives. So when you look at this list, it doesn't say you have to be perfect, but it does say your home will replicate your life, meaning that your home should show the values that you've taught should have rubbed off on people in your home. So at this church, what I love about our eldership is we have a really good conversation with the wife of anybody who's been nominated to help us lead. Because if we go and say, if someone walked up to Heather and said, do you think Mark's ready to be an elder? And she, when she's done laughing, if she would come and say no, 
then should we not be advised by the fact that the home isn't equal to the Sunday morning performance? Absolutely. But when you read this list, and I hope you'll spend some time with it, be encouraged that it's not looking for perfection. It's looking for submission. It's looking for a person who can say no to themselves so they can say yes to God and other people. Number four, advice for every young believer. And this is where his age comes into play. This is one of my favorite verses from all of 1 Timothy. Set an example in speech, life, love, and faith and purity. Uh, I, have, I wish I could wear it. I have a t-shirt back when I was in college that CIY handed out, at least a, a speaker at CIY handed out a shirt, and it said 1 Timothy 4.12, and on the back it said, show Christ by, and it listed those things. I've always loved that t-shirt because that's a challenge for every student. In an age of Snapchat and everything else going on in social media, when you can, I mean, seriously, someone thought it'd be a good idea to create a device that allows you to do something, and 10 seconds later, nobody can track it down. Talk about the temptation of all temptations. And oops, somebody's found out a way that those Snapchats now aren't deleted. They're being captured and used against people regularly. I've told, I've told my son, my oldest, you've got to understand the first thing a future employer is going to do is he's going to go back in your Facebook and find out all the stuff that you thought was so brilliant. And uh, it, could, it could keep you from, from getting an opportunity of a lifetime. We just live in an age where everything we think or say gets thrown out there and we have to be really careful. Listen to what he said, not just to a kid preacher. Listen to what he said to a young man. He said, set an example for the believers. Not just, this isn't about winning the lost. This is about living the life. In speech, life, love, faith, and purity. Number five, the widow's care. Paul is often accused in contemporary scholarship of being a misogynist, being anti-women. And this particular letter, and Philemon, brings up some of the criticism of Paul that's very relevant today. It's discussed and written about quite a bit. One is his treatment of women. Okay, In Paul's day, a woman could not go out and be employed outside of her husband's domain. All right? Uh, I grew up in a culture where there was a big, strong movement. I, I want to parse my words really carefully so that you, you don't misunderstand my bigger point. I was raised in a culture in northern Indiana where a woman who was a Christian who worked outside of the home was not a good mother. But I was always hard-pressed to read Proverbs 30 and what a woman did in Proverbs 30. Sounds like a job to me. Now, and plus my mom used to always say, she had a job, she just didn't get paid for it. Was raising four horrible boys doing the best she could but when you read Proverbs 30 they make things and sell things in the market and trade and barter that sounds like a job so I'm not saying every woman should work but I think we need to be careful in our culture we don't beat up those who do second piece a woman could not work outside of her husband's career or her husband's business what happened if the husband died well, now you understand why terms like Rahab the prostitute are in the Old Testament. Okay? A woman who, who could not, did not have a male child to take care of her in her old age would often have to resort to some pretty crude forms of, of male life to be able to sustain her life and feed herself. Read the story of Ruth and tell me what was Ruth's panic when her husband died and her brother-in-law died and her father-in-law was dead that Naomi had to work hard to give Ruth somebody who would give her extra because she couldn't go work and she didn't want to prostitute herself. So when Paul says, older women in the church, widowed women, take care of the younger women. Teach them how to love their husbands. Would that have been a necessity? That wasn't just be a domicile woman who does whatever her man says. No, no, understand that in the culture that day, Paul was saying that in the church we take care of each other. In fact, I got a really beautiful, God's timing is wonderful. I got a sweet uh, email of encouragement this morning from one of, uh, a friend of mine here in the church who said, and I love it, she said, I don't even remember what you were talking about that Sunday morning, but you brought up the passage about how older women should mentor younger women. That's what the church did. So she went and got with one of our elderly women in the church who's a wonderful Christian person. And she said to him, you're an older woman, I'm a younger woman, mentor me. And there's now 30 women that meet under this design, like the Bible asks, 
And she said to me in this, I, I knew a little bit about it, but she told me, she said, we've learned to make pies, which is of God. <laughs> I told her to prove it. We'll see how that email exchange happens. But she said, we've sat around and talked about husbands. We've sat around and talked about children. We've talked about careers. We've talked to, she said, we've learned to make pies and crochet. Now, some of you go, well, who's got time for that? No, no, you've got to understand, that's called community. That's what we do. So when, when young couples get married and move away from their family, what should the church do for them? Bring them in and mentor them in those early years of marriage. This is what Paul's talking about, all under this widow's care. It's a beautiful system. Paul was not anti-women. He was more pro-woman than any writer of his day. Because instead of saying, oh, tough luck, he said the church should take care of women who are in tough spots and can't take care of themselves. Number six, and if that didn't make you happy, the warning against <coughs> love of money. Paul's just going with all the hits. Point we need to make very succinctly. Money is good. You need it. God's designed it from the very beginning. It's the exchange of something for something of value. You may not see it as money in the early days, but Cain, Cain and Abel had vegetables and herds. And those vegetables and herds provided them life. Uh, Peter and James and John were fishermen. They caught fish in the morning. They sold them at the market in the afternoon. They brought home exchange for food that night. Their family was fed. If they didn't catch fish that day, they were in trouble. So is there a problem with money? No, it's the love of money. It's the replacement of God with money. I have enough money, I don't need God. The truth is, it's tough for us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, and we have freezers full of it. Now, should you be ashamed that you have a freezer full of food? Absolutely not. Until you look in that freezer and say these classic words. There's nothing to eat. That's the stuff that my dad lectured me on and I lecture both of my sons on. Brayden says, we got nothing to eat. Oh, I'll make you some food. We got lots of food. We shouldn't have to grocery shop for, for weeks because of how much we have stored up. It's tough to pray, give us this day our daily bread because we're spoiled. Let's go to 2 Timothy. Who wrote it? Paul. Well, what did he write? A letter of advice. 1 Timothy was probably written in Ephesus. 2 Timothy was probably written in a Roman jail. It was written roughly 67 AD, three or so years after the first letter was written. And it was written to warn the danger of false teachers who were starting in the church. There's a different tone to this letter. It's a letter of warning. Some scholars, you'll see it there in the notes if you take time to read it, some scholars suggest this would have been the last letter that Paul would have written, that he would die at the hand of Emperor Nero very soon after this. So there's a sense of urgency to this letter. It's one of his most inspiring letters as far as I'm concerned. So in 2 Timothy 1, what's special is parents have a vital role in their children's faith. I don't know if you know historically in church history or if you even care. But do you know that the concept of youth ministry was something that nationally began in the early 1970s? There were a few examples in the 1960s of churches setting apart. But I remember in my church, my home preacher was the preacher, the custodian, the mechanic, and the youth minister. He organized VBS. He had kids over once a quarter to his house, and we played silly games and we ate pizza, and we hung out. But it wasn't until, historically in the United States, it wasn't until the early 1970s that thing like youth ministry came about. And I am 100% in agreement, especially in a church this large. It is crucial that we have people focusing on pastoral areas and giving oversight and direction to them. I believe in what we're doing. I have no shame in that. However, since the early 1970s, there seems to have become an abdication of parenting to the church. Now, any youth minister I've ever worked with, I've encouraged them with these words. When I started in youth ministry, I was told these same things. I've passed it on. My primary responsibility as a youth minister is to the parents of the students, not to the students. 
And what I mean by that is, for parents who don't know what they're doing and have never been raised in the church, I need to encourage them and help them discover what it means to live out their faith in front of their children. To those parents who already have it figured out, I need to use them to help those other parents. When you minister to the parents, you do not take the role of the parent. I've had the experience, I only did youth ministry for three and a half years, and I had at least three kids come to me and say, I'm going to tell you something, but you have to promise me not to tell my parents. And I would smile at them and go, I will never make you that promise. And they're like, what, what? Don't no, no, you have to understand. Your parents are your spiritual guardians. And I'm, I'm obligated by scripture to make sure that if you're at risk of danger or you're doing something that's going to hurt you or somebody else, they have to know. So I wasn't a great secret keeper and people stopped confiding in me. But at the end of the day, I can't replace parents. I don't expect Adam or Sam or Jim or any of the youth sponsors to raise my kids. That's Heather and my privilege. But I need your help. And Paul shows here that it's the work of his grandmother and his mother that Timothy is the man he is. Paul doesn't say, look what I've done in your life. Paul says, no, I only just took what they started as a foundation and we built on that. That's what youth ministry looks like. So when we interview our youth staff, I want you to know as contributors and partners in this ministry, this is a conversation I have with all of them. Build off what the parents have put in place and if the parents haven't built a foundation, teach them how. And if they won't do it, then we'll come in. But that's the last ditch effort. Now, I'm not doing that to justify our youth ministry. But I think a lot of people in churches today, especially in highly organized denominational background churches, feel like, no, that's why we hire the youth minister is to make sure our kids keep their noses clean. No. Research is indicated. Uh, it's kind of fascinating. I'm going to throw general numbers out. Don't quote me on these exact things. But I've heard a friend of mine uh, last uh, week tell me that they've done the research and if a kid goes to church and none of the parents go to church, and he's the only sibling, there's a 16% chance when they get out of high school that they'll remain in the church. If one or more sibling goes with them, there's about a 30% chance. If mom brings the kids to church, there's a 40% chance they'll stay in the faith after high school. If mom and dad brings them to church, there's a 92% chance they'll stay in the faith. Gentlemen, did you just hear what I told you? We can't abdicate parenting to our youth ministers and we cannot abdicate it to our wives. There's a reason God asks men to lead in the home because A, we won't if he doesn't make us. I mean, is... That... <laughs> All right, a Braden story. I was in the kitchen making my big container of hot tea on the way out the door. My wife was in the kitchen making Braden his lunch. She'd made him these little microwave pancakes, a Pop-Tart, weird combination, and a big thing of yogurt. And I heard Braden laying in his, on the chair in the family room watching Good Morning America yell into the kitchen, Mom, would you bring me a water? And I lost my mind. I just walked in the family room, and she was going to. She's just a better human than I am. And I said, don't. I walked in there, and I said, what? You just asked your mom to bring you a, get up and get your own. Yes, sir. He runs in there, and gets his water, and Heather goes, I would have done it, i.e. the problem. I said, Braden. And my wife goes, well, I do it for you. I'm like, yeah, but I bought you a ring. So that makes it okay, right? <clears throat> Men will let women do anything we can get you to do. I think spiritually it's even worse. So my mom was the big champion in our home. There came a point where something happened where my dad started saying, started talking more to me about God. And I'm grateful for it. That didn't mean my mom's influence didn't matter, but do you hear what I'm saying? When a mother and father... <clears throat> are leading a home. Now, I realize I'm talking to an audience where there may not be a father who's engaged, or there may not be a mother who cares about the Lord, or both parents. We may have kids down the hallway who don't have any spiritual parents, then what do we do? The church does it then. That's when we supplement. We never replace, but we always supplement. I mean, you read Second Timothy, you'll see the, the foundation for that. Excuse me. <clears throat> the second thing, the spiritual source of opposition to God's truth. The spiritual source of opposition to God's truth. Paul points out that he's, there are people that are quarreling and arguing in the church. They're not arguing for the glory of God, they're arguing for control. I've been absolutely amazed, and I don't knock on wood because I'm not that kind of guy, 
But I am grateful, and I, I do thank God for this regularly. I've, I've been allowed to be a part of this church for six years. I have never once had to go into a meeting where somebody was demanding that if they didn't get their way, they would leave. Praise God for that, because I came out of that. I came out of if you didn't do this or this. We had a family leave because we didn't have VBS one year. We had VBS. We just didn't call it VBS, and they left because church ought to have VBS, which was really funny to me because in the 15 years that I'd been at that church, they never came. Now, did they love Jesus? I think so. Are they going to be surprised to see me in heaven? Absolutely. But I fully expect them to be there. But I thought, how demanding to assume we had to have a program that you never helped or brought your kids to. You know, I'm not superior. Please don't misunderstand me. But when there's division, the division seems to never be about God's glory. It always seems to be about man's wishes and desires and personal opinions. Paul's warning Timothy, don't get caught up into that. Don't, just don't. It's not worth it. Preach Jesus and let the rest of it work itself out. Third, beware of churches having a form of godliness without power. I actually thought this afternoon we got to that point that the lightning would hit and all the power would go out and we'd go, we're done, thank you. See you next week, but it didn't happen. A form of godliness, Paul says. We would probably say today, very religious. They go to everything. They have times of prayer. They read their Bible. But there's no power. There's no life. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's no love, peace, patience, kindness. If there's no fruit of the Spirit, you're not drawing off the, the vine. That's what Jesus said. You'll produce fruit because you're connected to me. I'm going to do things in you that are amazing. <clears throat> A form of godliness. Now, Here's what we're not allowed to do biblically. I'm not allowed to walk around and go, form of godliness, real godliness. Form of godliness, real godliness. No, the only person I can assess is who? Is me. I'm the, the only person I can have this conversation with is myself. So Timothy said, don't, or Paul said, Timothy, don't get caught up in all of these arguments. Preach Jesus and watch the power flow. And it did. Number four is probably the, just incredible passage of scripture. The importance of knowing and living scripture. This is where Paul says to preach the word in season and out of season. And then he talks about the word of God. He says it's God breathed. It's inspired. Now, Michael DeFazio and I have been talking about doing a class. It wouldn't be a long class. It might be three weeks. Doing a class on what the inerrancy of scripture means. Because in America, there's a lot of different takes on it. Meaning that some people think that Paul sat down to write this letter and all of a sudden his hand started moving and he had no idea what he would write. I don't tend to, to believe that's what inspiration means. I think inspiration comes through the person, through the way they're wired by God, and through the things God's taught them. Having said all that, we can go to that another discussion down the line. I do believe it's inspired. I believe that what Paul's writing here, God wanted us to know. And so because of that, that's what it means to be God-breathed. It takes you back to Genesis when God formed Adam and Eve out of dust. And then what's, how did they come to life? He breathed into them. And when you leave, now I've, I've seen reports, I've never been in a room but, uh, when this happened, but I've read at least two different accounts of someone about to die and they placed them on a wait table to find out when they expired what was the loss? What, how much does the spirit weigh? No discernible difference. God's not going to be trapped like that, I don't think. But when, when they're gone, you know, certain parts of the body still function physically. There's an expulsion of a few things. There can even be twitching. There can be a moan. But the person's gone. The spirit of them is gone. The word of God is inhabited by the spirit of God. That's what Paul wants Timothy to remember. That's why sound doctrine matters. We're not talking about opinions. We're talking about what God wanted us to have. So he says it's useful, <clears throat> excuse me, for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now those terms all sound similar, right? Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. Well, what's the difference between rebuking and correction? What's the difference between teaching and training? 
Well, I, I heard this. Warren Wiersbe said this at a lecture that I was in in Dallas one time, and it's made me happy ever since. Here's how he describes those verses. The Bible tells you what is right, what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. And that's the difference between those four words. I'll give it to you again. What is right, what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. That's what it means to be taught, rebuked. So teaching is, this is the right way to do it. Rebuking is, we don't do it that way. Okay? I used to have a girl, when I coached softball um, for the high school, she would come and she would catch a ground ball and she'd reach underneath it. She'd flip it up with her glove, pop it in her hand and throw it, which is pretty cool when she did it right. But as a coach, I wasn't looking for her to do it cool. I wanted her to do it the right way. And the right way is my way. The right way is bend your knees, secure the ball in your throwing hand, bring it to your shoulder, turn your hips and throw. None of this, flip it in the air. You're not Michael Jordan. You're a freshman high school softball player. So one game, she flipped it over her shoulder, went for an error, girl got to third, scored two runs. I had my teaching moment. Oh no, I did not teach her. I rebuked her. How do we do that? Two hands in the glove, knees bent. Uh-huh. Why didn't you do it that way? I didn't think about it. I said, sit down. The next time I put you in there, maybe you'll think about it. Now, if, if you do that with a guy, he's going to cuss at you, throw his glove, threaten your life. She looked at me, was like, okay, and sat down. I thought, All right, the rebuke didn't go as well as I wanted it to. But the difference is, there's a right way to do it. Here's how you do it, and here's how you not to do it. Do you see the Bible doing that for you? Here's how you're to live. Here's how I don't want you to live. This is not the way in the family of God we behave. So how to get right then? So how do I then go from being wrong to back to being right? And how do I stay on that side of the equation? That's what the word of God, Paul says, does for us. That's why you can read any passage, and it may not tell you what to do, but it can tell you the heart of God, and when you know the heart of God, it'll help you understand what to do, or what not to do, what to keep doing, and what to never do again. Let's go to the book of Titus. These will take a little less time. Written by Paul. It's a letter of advice. It was written to a man named Titus who lived in Crete. It was written somewhere between 65 and 66 AD, or ACE if you want to get to the fancy titles. And he was challenging them to live out their grace. That was the why he wrote it, to live out grace. Titus, like Timothy, traveled with Paul on these tours. He had planted churches. He had seen what Paul did. Now Paul said, you go do it. And he sent him to this island, Isle of Crete, which according to the time and day, in fact, in Titus 1.12, he even says, that he quotes by saying, Cretans are always liars and evil beasts. This was, a, this was the Vegas Everything that went on there made one person feel really good. And Paul writes a letter that I don't think is appreciated for its insight because what he's telling them to do is devote themselves to doing good things. When people say James and Paul disagreed, Paul said you're saved by faith and James says you're saved by works, those people haven't paid attention to the book of Titus. Because this is where Paul says, if you're saved by grace, act like it. Promote grace. Live in the freedom. Do these things that matter. So you have your outline. What's... What's special in this letter? He appoints elders in every town. Let's go back to, to Timothy's equation of what makes a good leader. You need submission. I need to be submissive to somebody. You need to be submissive to somebody. And corporately, we need to be submissive to somebody. And the somebodies we're submissive to need to be submissive to somebody. Or as one of my professors taught me in Bible college, it is not my church, it is not the elder's church, and it is not the family that started its church. It's Jesus' church. And we're all given responsibilities, who, and we all answer to him. When we get submission down, it's a great concept. I've seen my mom be submissive to my dad, and I've seen my dad be submissive to my mom. And none of them were unfortunate or awkward or uncomfortable. It made sense. I've seen my dad want to get up and kill all four of his sons. And I've seen my mom say, Dale, stop. You're overreacting. 
and she became my hero. And my dad was submissive to her. Why? Because he knew her heart. He knew his temper. He knew that he probably had, didn't have all the equation. So for my mom to interfere, he took that advisement well. So who in your life right now are you putting your spiritual walk in submission to? If your answer is, I don't know, you are out of line with God's plan for your life. And you will only get so far. Let me rephrase it. Take an athlete. I see Tom back there. I walk through uh, the high school and I see Tom's picture in the wall. Tom was a basketball player. So one day I was standing back there when my little kid was playing basketball and some of the guys were walking through the hall and I said, hey, tell me about that guy. Oh, one of the best basketball players, if not the best to play in Webb City High School. What interesting. Quiet Tom stands at the door, smiles at me every Sunday, doesn't say a whole lot. Killed me in a round of golf one time, so I've never played again. But he's a pretty exceptional athlete. But I, I'm going to venture this. Tom Maxwell did not become a great athlete all on simple ability. He was a good athlete on simple ability. He became a great athlete when a coach made him do what he didn't always want to do. Is that fair? So, if you're a good artist, was it because you were naturally gifted or somebody challenged you to go beyond your own? That's what submission does for us. It takes us from where we don't want to work hard. We don't want to go that extra ground. We can't see our own faults. We can't see our own inabilities. And someone says, you can do this and here's how you do that. And when we submit to that, Paul said to uh, Titus, put elders, put qualified spiritual leaders to oversee the family so they can speak into the lives of people to go where they've gone. So elders is not a title. Elders is, or elders are rather, an opportunity to pastor people to make them better. Now, you don't care about my coaching prowess, but I tell you about it anyway. When I coach Little League every year, and I, I'll probably coach Little League until they make me quit. And I don't want to coach any kid beyond the age of 13, because at 13, every boy knows everything. I love the 10-year-old boy who wants to get better. And I have three simple rules. Do it the way you're taught. Do it right every time. And remember, it's a game. Have fun doing it. Now, that sounds really kind of bumper stickerish, but I believe in that. If you show them how to do it and you make them do it the right way, they'll start to love the game. If they do it their way, they're going to have little success, and nobody likes a game where you have little success. So, when a kid who can't field a ground ball in the first week of practice stops a three hopper to him, even if he throws the guy out at first or airmails it into the stands, I don't care. Why? Because he fielded the ground ball, he tasted success, and he now starts to believe I can do this. That's what elders should do for the church. They shouldn't rule the church. They should coach players to play well, to love the game, and to get fully into it. That's what Paul's letter to Titus is all about. Number two, teaching in accordance with sound doctrine. Notice this is a reoccurring theme. Romans is about doctrine. Second Corinthians is about doctrine. First and second Timothy and Titus are about doctrine. It must matter. Third, emphasize the transforming moral power of grace. Emphasize the transforming moral power of grace. So what happens when that ground ball goes between that kid's leg? Do we yell at him? <clears throat> Or do we challenge them, it's okay. I'm going to leave you in there. You'll get the next one. Keep trying. It's going to take a while to figure this out. You're not going to be good at this. Uh, my mom and dad <clears throat> are funny people. When Heather and I got married, their words of advice to us were this. You're now married. You're not going to be good at it. Be patient. That's great advice. I've never been married before, so I had no clue. All I'd ever seen is Mike and Carol Brady on the Brady Bunch. I figured we were all that way. About two hours into marriage, I thought, oops, maybe not. And my dad just kept reminding me, oh, you won't be good at marriage until you're well down the line. <clears throat> 28 years later, I don't think I'm there yet, but it's been a lot of fun because we've tried to practice grace in our marriage. I now, when Heather would point out a reoccurring problem of mine, our first five years of marriage, I would get just really bitter quiet. I'd go, oh, really? You know, and I'd pout for three weeks. She never noticed, but it, really, I was trying to get her attention. Now, later, I kind of look at her and go, yeah, I do that a lot, don't I? And she's like, yeah, I wish you'd quit. And we move on. It's called grace. Because I know that she's willing to tolerate that until I overcome it. Isn't that what grace is? It's not saying it's okay that I can be an idiot and selfish. What it's saying to me is she's going to love me through this. And that's a motivation 
to work hard. That's a motivation to give extra effort and try to be better. My first five years, I was too immature to handle it. Now at the point, I'm like, I got over myself. And so this is what I need to do. Number four, it stresses rebirth and renewal. Now, this is a controversial statement. Your salvation did not happen the moment you confessed Christ or was baptized or made your decision. That's what started your process. Every day rebirth has to happen. If we don't wake up tomorrow morning and say, this day is about God, we will make it about us. That's where grace comes into play. I can take advantage of grace by saying I have a hall pass and I can do whatever I want and Jesus is going to take care of me. Or I can stop and say, today I want to honor Jesus in the way that I live in such a way that he has to forgive me less than he's ever had to forgive me before. It's my gift of worship. But it's rebirth and renewal every day. That's why it says the mercies of God are new every morning. He didn't say, okay, on September 29, 1974, Mark, you better be good. He looked at me like my dad did, and he said, you're not going to be good at this, but I'll help you. Every day is that journey. The book of Philemon. Who wrote it? Paul. What is this letter? It's a letter of recommendation. It was written in Rome. And they believe it was during his first imprisonment, which would have been around 62 or 63. Why was it written? To plead the case of a man named Onesimus. I don't expect you to know how to spell that, but if you look right down there, there's two bold-faced names. One of them is the one you want to write in there. Philemon was the owner. Onesimus was the slave. He apparently stole from his master and ran away. While in Rome, Paul won him to Christ. And in that, Paul convicted him to go back. And this is the horror of horrors. This is when the scholars say, why didn't Paul set him free? Slavery is wrong. Okay. Slavery in Paul's day was not necessarily the slavery we Americans believe. It wasn't Alex Haley's roots. That he worked for him. He was provided a living. He may have gone bankrupt and he needed someone to be uh, his caretaker. So he said, I'll work for you if you'll house and feed my family. Paul sent him back and told Philemon, Onesimus is a brother in Christ. Treat him like one. But he also told Onesimus, go back and serve Philemon like you ought to. It's a pretty, it's a pretty short book. It's a pretty simple book. Which means, all right, here's the moral of the story. I believe you can look at the letter of Philemon and come to this conclusion. The condition you're in when you are saved, not spiritually, but economically, job responsibilities, commitments you've made, the obligations you have when you become saved are not forgiven and taken away from you. You need to honor those. You need to work hard. You need to honor the relationships you're in. Paul even talks about marriages where someone's one to Christ and the other person is not a believer. Paul even talks about how to deal with those. But he says to Onesimus, go back and do what you said you would do. Keep your word. The best testimony of a brand new believer is a person who can come from the light, go back in the darkness and spread the light. Not disappear and hide in the light. So it's a real challenging letter for us because we get caught up in slavery, which is justifiable. But I've even put one of the editor's notes in there that said, if, if Christianity would have abolished slavery, it would have crushed the nation and it would have, they would have executed the church. And the opportunity for it to go into other nations probably would have been gone. So is Paul anti, anti-women and anti-freedom? Absolutely not. He was writing in a context where he said to Onesimus, you're saved by Christ, now go serve and show Christ. And it really sounds like what James talked about and Peter talked about when they told slaves, honor your employer, honor your owner, your master. Serve them as if you would serve Christ. And by that, you'll promote the gospel more than running away in your freedom, which is quite interesting. Because remember where we started tonight. As Americans, that rubs me. No man owns me. Paul said, well, Jesus does. So how about you go back and serve your master like 
you serve the one who owns your soul. All right? Well, week 10, next week we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. And we'll spend the entire night walking through a pretty powerful, we'll look at it in four pieces, pretty powerful book uh, called Hebrews in the New Testament. I don't think we could handle that and anything else. So we're going to make that one piece. And then uh, pretty soon after that we get into First uh, and Second Peter, First, Second, Third John, and then we're going to finish the final week in Revelation. So we're starting to wrap the New Testament up, and we'll head to a conclusion. I'll have a safe trip home, and uh, Lord willing, we'll see you Sunday. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.